All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. This morning we're looking at the crucifixion of the king and his declaration that it is finished. Um, just to catch us up to where we are, I want to remind us that we started in the high priestly prayer. And remember, remember what Jesus said. We, we, we can't lose track of what Christ desired in that prayer. Uh, otherwise, we, re- we really lose track of the meaning of the passion of Christ himself. Remember that the thing that he asked God to do was that his glory would be completed. And this morning, we're going to see in a sense that that part of that is actually being answered, that the crucifixion itself was the means by which Christ was high and lifted up and crowned, though it was a crown of thorns and though he suffered significantly. But that wasn't the fullness of his glory. No, the, the fullness of his glory comes when he is comes out of the tomb, risen, not guilty. See, remember the wages of sin are what? Death. And if Christ had truly died, he would have been what? Guilty, which means you're what? Guilty too, and you have no hope. And then the glory was not completed there either, was it? Because the the Father welcomed him to the right hand. Remember in that prayer, he said, Lord, restore me to you. I I wanna be again with you as we were in eternity past, as it was when we were creating the world. And so the, the Lord, our God, the heavenly Father says to Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. And he is allowed to sit. What does it mean to sit? It is finished. So he sits at the right hand of the Father, the position that is for only for the firstborn son. And so he, even now, is making intercession for us. His glory is still not yet fully complete because he's going to come again and be made ever more glorious when we are revealed in glory. Amen? When the fullness of the work is done. So you're saying to yourself, if you are wicked like me, well, I thought you said it was finished. Sounds like there's a whole bunch of stuff left to do. No, it is finished in that it is a certainty that that which is left to do is done. And it will be completed. There's no way that it's coming off the rails. There's no way it's going to be somehow different. You understand? It is a certainty. And there's nothing left for you to do to receive that. And that is a beautiful thing for us. When we hear Christ say, it is finished, those should be the most comforting words we have ever heard in our Christian life. Because we are so prone, aren't we, to again and again to say, no, 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 but, but, but wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, no. It can't be finished. I, I mean, I, mean I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't said anything. I, I, haven't done, I haven't done anything. I still got stuff to do, Lord. I mean, you, you could love me even more. Just let me do some stuff, and you could love me more than you did on the cross. Really? God can love you more than he does on the day that we will read about. And yet we strive and we strive, don't we? we? We continue to try to work for that which we have been given for free. And so for us, my prayer for all of us, and, and this has been incredibly convicting to me as pastor, think about, think about what am I measured by? Right? Think about it. What, day in and day out, what is the measure of my pastorate? You. I am dependent on you. You know you. How am I doing? What would the world say of my pastorate if, it, if they could put a body camera on you and just wander around with you all day? Or me even. Ooh. 
Is the measure of my pastorate how many seats we have full? Is the measure of my pastorate how much money we bring in? Is the measure of my pastorate the programs that we can somehow come up with? What is it? The measure of my pastorate is it is finished. That's what should be the measure. But know this, I fight day in and day out. Trust me, there's days where Josh and I, or Josh and Bonnie and I, we look at each other and we say, I mean, maybe we should give in. Maybe we should give in and do something to, to, to really ramp it up and grow, whatever that means. To compete, oh my God. Woe be unto us if we compete instead of just share the gospel and let it be the prejudice. So know that I wrestle with it as much and maybe more than you. Now that shouldn't, that shouldn't destroy your confidence in me because you never should have had any. Your confidence should be in the finished work of Jesus, not in me. It was disheartening this week to read about Tuli and Javajan and how the church at Willow Creek tried so hard to restore him only to find out there was more that he didn't tell him. And they had to let him go. And one of the best letters I think I have read, uh, Pastor Kevin Labby um, just uh, published it on the Aquila Report. And he says, look, did we make a mistake? Yes and no. No, we should have never given him a title. Never. But you've got to understand, he didn't do anything anyway. He was on sabbatical. We were trying to help him support his family. Shouldn't we try to help those who are fallen? And I couldn't help but think about Galatians 6, which we've talked about as deacons and as elders as we've been reading the bruised read. In Galatians 6, it says something that I've never paid attention to before. It says, whenever someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, help them. Help bear their burden lest you yourself fall. So here at Willow Creek, I was one of the first ones, trust me, to critique them. To say, why in the world would you give this guy a title? What are you thinking? And they admit, yeah, we, we shouldn't have done that. But what we should have done still is loved him and given him an opportunity to rise. Woe be unto us if we are the only ones or the, are the main ones who shoot our wounded. Those who are caught. See, it's the finished work of Christ that allows us to do that, isn't it? That we could put our arms around somebody who's done some, something horrible, just as Jesus did for us, and say, listen, if you're willing to walk this out, I will go with you every step of the way. But know that I can never go as far as Christ did. And so it has been pressing on me this finishedness of Christ and what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for us as a church to walk in light of this? And so Christ prayed and we know what he prayed, right? What does he want for his church? What does he say at the end of that high priestly prayer as he is going to the cross? What does he say? I am dying for this. What does he want? Don't be Presbyterians, be Baptists. He wants unity. He wants for the church to be united around the finishedness of his work. He had just told him in John 13 that the world will know who you are by your critique of the other churches. Right? And what it says? It's how we read it. It's how we live it. The world will know who you are by your critique of the culture, which has fallen anyway. The world will know who you are by your unwillingness to practice Matthew 18 with each other. That is how the world knows us, by the way. 
And that's not what we should be known for. What we should be known for is our unity around the finished person and work of Jesus Christ, who God sent by grace alone for us to have by faith alone. And so Jesus wants unity for us. And when he says it is finished, that means that that is an actual and real possibility that is utterly impossible outside of the finishedness of Christ's work. So he has provided in this finishedness for that which he prayed. And remember how he goes into the garden. Wes, last week, as he, as he shared with you all, remember when they ask, he asks, who are you looking for? Isn't that an interesting thing? So who just sees control of the situation? He says, whom do you seek? They said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And remember what he said, I am. And what do they do the first time? They fall back because of the sheer power of the confession of his divinity. He just said, I am God, the one you have come to arrest, the one that you've accused of blasphemy, I am he drives the point all the way home. And remember, remember what he does. He turns Peter loose on him and cuts him to pieces and he's safe, right? No, no, remember what he does. He says, hey, who'd you guys come looking for again? You're all laying on the ground. Get up. Well, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Take me. And Peter tries to undo what just happened with his sword and what does Jesus do? He saves Peter's life, which Peter repays him, by the way, in the parts you didn't read, by denying him three times. And Christ is brought to Pilate, where Pilate begins to question him and basically tells him, listen, I'm the one who holds the keys to life and death. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't. And remember what he does is he has him scourged and he throws a purple robe on him and puts a crown on him to mock him. And he brings him out and he says these words, Behold the man. Now don't miss this, but we haven't journeyed all the way through John. What was the first behold declaration in the book of John? Behold the lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. And now he's behold the man. And in just a moment, we're going to hear Pilate declare, no, behold the king. And so here Christ continues in his obedience to provide exactly what it is that we would need to be restored to God, not left cut off from him. And so we also see the sovereignty of God at work in these things. Very important. Again and again, it shows us God is at work. So here's the main thing that I want you to get from the sermon this morning, that God's redemptive sovereignty and Jesus' finished work provide salvation in full to be received by grace alone through faith alone. Let me say that again. God's redemptive sovereignty and Jesus' finished work provide salvation in full to be received by grace alone through faith alone. Now, why do I bring God into the equation? Aren't we being saved from him? Well, no. Who sent Jesus? Who is so loving and so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son? God did. Don't leave him out of the equation. 
It's been interesting. I've had some conversations with a number of you, and, and I'm appreciative of these conversations. One of my statements that gets under your skin, one of them, aren't there many I have heard? Uh, this one's different than the one Wes pointed out. This one is, you have been saved to God, not from him. And a number of you have come to me and said, I, right, whoa, come on, what does that mean? We're being saved, saved from his wrath. Yeah, and amen. But primarily, what are you being? You're being restored to the Father. And his wrath, by the way, is not one of his attributes. It is the reaction of his holiness to that which is not holy or sinful. So you are not being saved from the person of God, the Father. You're being saved to him. That's critical. And it's interesting to me that we never fight, it seems like, to be in the presence of the Father. We always come up with excuses for why we have no business being there. And yet, this table tells us all the time where we belong. Doesn't it? As does God's Word. So remember, you're being saved to Him, restored to Him. That's the point of the whole project. That has primacy. Yes, you are being saved from His wrath. But he provided all that was necessary. It wasn't as if Jesus said, hold, hold on, hold on. Just calm down for a second. I got this. I'll put on flesh. I'll be a servant. I'll be back in a minute. That's how we treat it sometimes. And we lose God, the Father, whose heart so broke for his children, who was able to say, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. Says it twice in Ezekiel, just so they know. I don't know if you've read Ezekiel recently, but it ain't nice up to the point he says that. So don't forget that God's redemptive sovereignty is as much a part of your salvation as the finished person and work of Christ. And we're going to see that here in the text. If you would turn to John chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 14 and read through 22 for the first part. Hear God's word again this morning. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, being Pilate, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him, being Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of, of a skull, which is Aramaic, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, we're stepping into the middle of the story a little bit here. And so what we have is Pilate has already questioned Jesus and he's, at, he's essentially begged Jesus, do, give me something to let you go. And Jesus, in obedience to his calling, says, no, I won't. I will receive that which is due me, the glory that is to come through the crucifixion. 
And so Pilate is angry with the Jews for, for them. He's, he's trying to needle them with his statements. And so when he says to them, behold your king, you have to read it essentially as a mocking epithet toward the Jews. So he is pressing in against them. Now, one thing to note, and I don't want to get bogged down in this too much. For those of you who may do some reading, you may hear some scholars say, well, see, John's timeline's all messed up. It's not the same as the other Gospels. You know, it's saying the day of preparation Passover, that puts it even before Thursday, and Jesus is supposed to be crucified on Friday, and it's just all, everything's all messed up. Well, let me just give you a quick explanation. If you have more questions about this, we can talk about it. But the day of preparation is actually the day before the Sabbath. That's always been referred to as that. So when it says the day of preparation of Passover, Passover is encompassing of the entire event, the entire week. So the day of preparation is actually Friday. They have actually just celebrated the Passover, or Jesus did, with his disciples the night before. So this is actually well within the timeline. There's, not a, there's actually not a problem at all in that regard. Now, some people also say it's, he gives a different time than Mark does. Well, the reason they give a different times is in their culture, as long as they were within about three hours of whatever it was supposed to be, they were fine. None like us. <laughs> well, not, I mean, you guys, you know, you should kind of show up whenever. You, you got that going for you. I mean, 1030 is pretty, should be pretty accurate, but we, whatever. I, I don't want to get into that. But there's really not a, there's really not a major um, scholarly issue here. And so when you read those kind of things, just recognize that there's just, just folks trying to twist stuff and lose sight of, you know, you want to get specific about time, but you, you, you don't want to get specific about it being finished. Okay. If that's what you want to do, that's, I can't fix that. But there is a genuine reason for that. And so we have here Pilate um, pushing against the Jews and saying, behold, your king. He is declaring something far more true than even he understood. And it is an echo in a sense from that John 1.29 when it is declared, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And notice in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, these images of behold the Lamb, behold the King come together, which is the image that you all have struggled so much with, some of you, um, that we see, which is the crucified Lamb who has the crown of a King. And so, he is just fulfilling that which the Lord had already determined. And so when the Jews cry out, away with him, they too are fulfilling scripture and God's sovereignty. Leviticus 16.27 says that a sacrifice must be done outside of the camp, outside of the city. So when they call for him to be crucified outside of the city in Golgotha, all they're doing is securing and solidifying the sacrificial image. They should have recognized. They knew this. And yet all they did was serve God's purpose in calling for him to be carried away. Even more important and far more troubling is that they say we have no king but Caesar. You've got to understand what they just did. This should take us all the way back to 1 Samuel 8. Remember when they were crying out for a king, the judges had been uh, a bit of a disaster. And the judges weren't a disaster because they were bad men in full or women. It was actually because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And remember what they called for in a king. We want a king like the surrounding nations. I don't know if you know the geography, but do you really want a king like the king of Assyria? Do you want a king like the king of Babylon? You knew Egypt you want a Pharaoh? Are you crazy? And so again, they say, we, 
We want a king. We want an earthly king like the nations. Our king is Caesar. Who are they denying here? God himself. Remember in 1 Samuel 8, he said, they have a king, it's me. I am their king. But they don't want me. They want an earthly king. So if you know anything about history, the Lord answers their request. Caesar becomes their king. What happens to the temple in 70 AD? There ain't one stone left upon another. It is destroyed. And again and again and again, the people have suffered as a result of them saying, you are not our king. Our king is Caesar. Now, just so we don't think that they're the only ones who do this. We do it too. Right? We have declared, no, no, no. My king is mammon. What is that? I just speak in tongues? No, it's money. How do, we, how do we know who our kings are, by the way? How do you spend your time? What dominates, what dictates whether or not you come to worship? You'll find out pretty quick who your king is. What dictates whether or not you're able to fellowship with other believers or able to serve or able to use your gift and calling? Is it your child? Is your king your child? Does your child dictate your Christian life and who you are? Should that be so? Now, I understand at different ages, different things are required, and I understand. I'm not calling for legalism here. But I am saying that if you would allow your formation as a believer to be dictated by a child who yet knows nothing you are setting that child up for destruction as an idol. And you are not loving that child well. The best thing that you will ever do for your children is grow to understand what it means that it is finished. And to mature into that. And not let them dictate those who know so very little where it is you are fed or not fed and when. How about your job? Is your job your king? Does your job dictate more than anything else? And it's funny to me. I hear people act as if they're in this great flowing stream with no control whatsoever. I ain't no idea. I mean, I just, nothing I can do. I'm sorry. That's what I got to do. As if God, who provides all of these things, somehow would put you in a no-win situation where you could not worship him. Let's think about that for a second. Did you see what he did to Egypt just to make sure that his people could begin to observe the Sabbath? Do you know anything about Egypt? You remember when they tried to worship? What did Pharaoh do? Double their workload and give them half of the resources. He crushed them. And God said, no more. Ten plagues later, the last being the worst, death of the firstborn in the Passover, people are allowed to go out into the wilderness and begin to worship and observe the Sabbath for the first time in their history as a people. So if God would go to that much trouble to ensure that his people could worship, why would he put you in a position where you couldn't and not provide all that you needed so that you could, you see? Now, before you get upset, if you're an ER doc or a firefighter or someone who runs sound for things, 
I am not necessarily saying that you should go out tomorrow and quit your job. Part of that may be your calling, and there's creative ways in which you can observe. But what I am saying is, you should not be cut off all the time. And it is, worship is worth enough for you and your family to sometimes make hard decisions. And if you don't think so, I just am not sure what Bible you're going to be able to read. Maybe something else is your king. Maybe it is a sport or maybe it is a, I don't know, something of some other kind. But ask yourself this question. What dictates how I spend the majority of my time? And whatever that is, that is your king. And you need to ask yourself, is your king going to be able to give you what a king ought give to one that is to be loved by that king? And if not, you probably should make some changes. And we're here to help you with that. So if you have questions or if you are struggling with anything that I just said, by all means, come and let's talk, let's reason together. We're not looking to burden you further. We're actually looking for you to be set free, which is what Christ came to give us and do. So don't cry out with the people and say, we, we have a king and his name is Caesar. Because that is them actually denying the fullness of the covenant promises. That is them unleashing themselves from all of God's blessings. It's not just an innocuous statement. And then Pilate turns him over to them, which we know to be the Romans, but I think John is being intentionally coy here because he's actually turning Jesus over to both the Romans and the Jews in some sense. The Jews will be culpable. In another gospel, they say, his blood is on our hands as if that were a good thing. Shouldn't be. And then he puts the sign in three different languages. Aramaic would have been essentially the Hebrew language. Latin was the, the tongue of the military. And then Greek was the lingua franca. That was of the, of the entire um, empire. So Pilate wanted to make sure, or was it God, that everyone could read that the king hung on this cross. See, Pilate, yet again, is being maneuvered by the sovereign hand of God to, to fulfill his missional purpose. God wanted everyone who walked by that cross to know that the king hung there. And yet again, the Jews do what we do so, so often. We, too, try to rewrite that which has been declared by someone in authority. Hey, don't, don't say it that way, God. Maybe I can find me another translation where it says something different. Maybe, maybe if I got a hold of the, the, the New Living Translation, or maybe if I got me one of those amplified Bibles, which means you read it real loud when you read it out loud. No, that's not true. Um, maybe, maybe you, can't, you can't say that, God. Maybe it's abrogated by something, right? Change it. Notice what Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. Doesn't God say the same thing to us? When we say, hey, change it. God, I don't want to live under, I don't, I don't like it. You're messing with my liberties because we are more concerned in our culture with individualism and so-called freedom. Let, let me ask you, this is one of the funniest conversations I've ever had with my daughter. She was 12. She's okay with me telling you this story, by the way. She thinks it's funny too. I, I came home and Susan was like, I, I can't even, I can't even deal with this. I don't even know what, to say. And I said, what, what happened? She said, Kimberly said she wants to be free. She don't need us. She can make her own decisions at 12 and she can take it from here. And I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll take care of it. So I walked in her room. I said, sweetheart, 
I understand you want to be free. She said, yeah, I do, because I don't need y'all. I said, that's great. This is happening a whole lot sooner than I anticipated. <laughs> this is great. I said, so uh, let, me, uh, let, me, let me give you the, the, the boundaries of how this is going to work, because freedom takes a little bit of doing to get there. And I just, I just want you to know how gracious I am with what I'm about to do. So you'll get it later. But uh, I said, here's the deal. Let's, let's start with what you're free of. Um, you are now free from my electricity that I pay for. You are now free from my hot water. You're free from my telephone. You are free from my food. You are free from this house and my car and my gas. You're free from all that. And look, I'm so nice. We got this little, we had this little utility room where I think most of the roaches and rats lived uh, all together. And it had some running water and light. So don't think I'm being totally mean. I said, look, I'm gonna let you live there for three months. Okay, but then you gotta find somewhere to live. You gotta either start paying rent or you got to go, be free. So by this point, she's crying. I said, what's wrong, sweetheart? I don't want that freedom. It's like, oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And so I said, so you understand this isn't exactly freedom, is it? To have no provision whatsoever. Do you really want to be free from the God of the universe who holds all things together, who makes all things new? You want to be out from under his tyranny? who says it is finished so that you can walk in newness of life? You want to be out from under all that tyranny? Where's everybody going to? Everybody's running out all of a sudden. Nobody wants to be under the hand of God all of a sudden. At least you're being honest. Now listen, he's given us so much. Why, why, would, we, why would we want to be out from under his finished work? Listen to what D.A. Carson says about this passage. He says, Pilate's malice serves God's ends. The Lord Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. The cross is the means of his exaltation and the very manner of his glorification. Even the trilingual notice may serve as a symbol for the, uh, for the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. Thus, the two men most actively and immediately responsible for Jesus' death, Caiaphas and Pilate, are unwittingly furthering God's redemptive purposes, unwittingly serving as prophets of the king they execute. You hear that? These men served as sovereign vessels. Carson even goes on to call them prophets of this king that they execute. Now, let's turn back to the text and see Further, what is happening here in the crucifixion, verses 23 through 27, where we will behold the son and behold your mother. Picking back up in the text, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What you need to know about this is this was a common practice that when someone was crucified, the soldiers would divide up their clothing to be able to keep them as souvenirs, if you will. Now, there's been a lot of hay made out of what was the, what was the deal with the tunic and its seamlessness. I don't know. 
There may be something there, but just not enough evidence for me to stand up here and declare something outright. I have my opinion, but I won't give it here um, because there's just no way to know for sure. But either way, they cast lots for that tunic. And this is also uh, an evidence of how much of Christ's glory, how much shame he had. He was stripped of all that he had, which was common for those to be stripped naked. And so this is just further emphasizing the depth of his shame and woe. And even in this, they are fulfilling that which God had written by his own finger in Psalm 22, 16 through 18. All they're doing is fulfilling scripture. Why do we need to know that? Because it looks like the darkest hour in history has come. And how would we have hope if we didn't know that the sovereign Lord was orchestrating even this darkness? And so, then Jesus from the cross begins to do that which he had prayed for. You need to understand that this moment is actually fulfilling in part Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, John 17, when he says, I want there to be unity in the church. In fact, he's showing them that there's a whole new community being formed even now on the cross. He says to his mother, behold your son, which is John, the disciple that he loved. And to John, he's saying, behold your mother. Things have been radically transformed and reoriented, and it means that the family is much bigger and larger than we could even comprehend. And as one who has lost his father before I was born, my father killed himself, and then my mother overdosed, as one who has spent many, many years without family, most of my family was dead by the time I was 30. So I have no blood relatives for whom I am in contact with at this point. The Lord has provided for me so richly in people that have loved us as if they were our parents. And I have more parents in some respects than than really I can please or keep up with. And so it has been a beautiful thing to see how what Christ declared there continues to come true for us even now. Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says uh, about this passage. He says, Jesus is not taking, not only taking care of his mother and his friend and filial and fraternal loyalty. He is more significantly creating the new family of the people of God, the community of those who will bear faithful witness to him in the huge surrounding world from now on. So when he says, the world will know who you are by your love you have for one another, know that that is well within the context of what he's saying to his mother and to John in this moment. He's telling them, remember why I am dying for you. I'm changing everything. So something for you to think about is how has Christ richly blessed you through your inclusion and participation in the broader family of God? Like you, you got brothers and sisters all around you. So often people say to me, we just, we want to feel connected. We want, we want community. And generally what they mean is they want me to somehow serve as uh, christianfriendmatch.com, which by the way, I'm not going to do. Uh, and it's up to you. All you got to do is grab somebody. You have Christ in common for crying out loud. That should be enough for you to be able to break bread together and not need me to come up with a bunch of stuff to make it easier for you. Christ has already made it easy for you. Don't yoke yourself to me and my desires. Receive what Christ has already done for you and take great joy in it. Turn back to the text as we close out the passage. (laughs) 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So here again, we see that scripture's being fulfilled. This is from Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21. And again, it is showing that the sovereignty of the Lord is fully and firmly within this entire context. That it is God who is orchestrating and providing for our salvation, not just Jesus who is coming between us and God. And so they are, he's given this sour wine, which is some old cheap um, Boone's Farm type stuff that the, that the soldiers would drink. Nothing good. It didn't, this was not the wine that had the medication in it. He had already rejected that earlier. This is different. Some believe that he asked for this so that people could really hear what he was about to say because he had something really important to say. And he said, it is finished. Remember earlier in John, he says, no one takes my life from me. I pick it up and I lay it down. And here we see that he gives up his spirit. He declares it is finished. What is finished? All that is necessary for our salvation. All that was needed, all that was required for our salvation is finished on the cross. Would that we could walk in light of that. There's so much that we could talk about in light of that, but better that we could get to the table here in just a moment. Listen to what Martin Luther says about this. He says, in this word, it is finished. Will I comfort myself? I am forced to confess that all my finishing of the will of God is imperfect, piecemeal work, while yet the law urges me on that not so much as one tittle of it must remain unaccomplished. Christ is the end of the law. What it requires, Christ has performed. Now, before you go saying, well, okay, we, we can murder each other, commit adultery. No, it's not the end of the law in that sense. It's the end of the law and it being the burden that actually keeps us from God. It is the end of the law in that it, it tries to convince us that there's things that we could do to please the Lord. It is finished. So do you live in the freedom of the finished work of Christ on your behalf? Now, just because you might say, no, I'm struggling, does that mean you're out? No, that means you're human. That means you're in the sanctification process is what that means, by the way. It is important for us to try to discover what are some of the barriers? What are some of the things that continue to whisper low to us? No, no, it's not finished. It's not finished. There's some stuff you still got to do. And unless you accomplish that stuff, it'll never be finished. That's the voice of Satan. Did God really mean it is finished? So know that you are more in legion with Satan when you do not walk in light of the finishedness. And when you're outside the hedge of protection, what, is, what does Peter tell us? A roaring lion awaits you. Remember, he ain't looking for followers. He's looking for food. You ain't none to Satan. Except to have the glory of the Lord destroyed. And that means your death, not your following him. And so... What are some of those things that constantly keep you on the hamster wheel, striving, never being able to enjoy assurance? Just real quick, I, I was a, a Christian of some kind for about 10 years and, and told my wife, 
I'm not sure I'll die a believer. That's bad theology, by the way. And really thought that I was at times coming undone, that I was becoming like uh, the guy who wrote the book Farewell to God, who was a contemporary Billy Graham. And for whatever reason, after really meditating on the finishedness and person work of Christ, I know for sure I'm going to die, Christian. It's the only way I'd want to die. I want to die with it being finished. And I don't want to strive. I don't want to do that which is meaningless, nor do you. Don't let Satan put you in a different kingdom. So what do we learn from this passage, John 19, 14 through 30? Number one, we're taught that God is sovereign and Christ is king over the rulers and mobs of this world who will both serve his ends in the end. Why is this important? Why is this important for the Fleemans to understand as they go to Azerbaijan where the government is not? Right now, they're kind of kind to Christians for now. Is this important for them to believe? Is it important for you to believe as we slouch toward November in America? Is it important for us to believe as North Korea is testing ballistic missiles? Yes, this is incredibly important for us to believe. Number two, we learn that Jesus' death forms a new community for the purpose of his mission. Three, that Jesus fulfilled all that was necessary to glorify God through the finished salvation for his sons and daughters. It is finished. Now, Charles Simeon says this in conclusion. He says, all that was necessary for our or man's salvation was now effected. Nothing remained to be done in order to the perfecting of his work on earth or to the forming of a perfect ground for man's acceptance with God. It is true that we must repent, but he need not repent in order to make satisfaction for his sins. No repentance of man can add to the value of Christ's sacrifice. That's really important. Your repentance is not a work. It is a passive reception of what has already been done. It is the recognition that it is finished. It is you in being humbled by the truth that you cannot save yourself, nor can anyone else save you but Jesus. What a great way to set us up for the table this morning. If the elders who are serving would come forward. All that we have talked about is represented here. All that Christ did and said is fulfilled and is represented in this table. This we eat of because it is finished. You don't eat of this table because more stuff needs to be done because, because God in his pettiness needs for us to eat a little bread and drink a little juice. No, it is we, if you remember from Isaiah 1, the, all of the stuff that we do in worship is because we need it. We need to be reminded. We need the picture, don't we? And what a beautiful picture this is. Remember that on that night when Jesus dined for the last time with those he loved so much, he wanted to make sure that they understood what was happening. And he just took something common. He just, he just grabbed some bread. And he held it up for him. And he said, listen, this bread is my body broken for you. What do you mean in that statement? He meant that all of their sin, past, present, and future, was going to be placed upon him and the fullness of God's wrath as associated with that sin would be poured out in full. It would be finished. And there was nothing more that they would need to do in order to be saved. 
So in this broken bread, as you take today, meditate on the finishedness of that truth. That there is, there is no further work that you must do to atone for or to make up for your sin. So you gotta understand that atonement means to make it as if it never happened. Can you, with some of the stuff you've done, that I know you've done, that I know I've done, can you make it as if it never happened that way nobody would ever remember it, including you? No, you cannot. Only Christ can, as far as the East is from the West, cast these things, never to be brought up again, amen? So as you take, take knowing it is finished. Let's pray for the first element. Father, thank you for the broken bread and the finished work of Christ. May we, as we take today, recognize that you have done all that was necessary for us to be saved. God, protect us from the, the words of the devil. As he says, did he really mean it's finished? No, it is finished. And amen. If you're not a believer, you should not take of this table because it is not yet finished for you in the sense of you understanding that. And this bread's not gonna nourish you anyway. Wait for lunch. If you are currently under church discipline at whatever church it is, I don't care. I don't need to know. I don't care if you agree with it. You need to not take of this table to honor Christ, to honor the bride who has sanctioned you until you can yet make reconciliation. The other person who should not take of this table is the one who would withhold the forgiveness that is represented herein to someone else. Does this mean you've got to be reconciled to everybody? No, but it does mean that you've got to be willing to be. And you may be in process, and you're going to need the nourishment of this table to get there. But if you would turn and say to someone, I'd rather you burn in hell than me have to deal with you. Don't eat this bread. It'll be a curse to you. It won't be good for you. Everybody else who says that I am a Christian, I am a sinner saved by grace through Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone, you get to eat and know that you're being nourished in your faith. You're being lifted up. You're being made new. In Christ's name.